0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the very first episode of the ninth season of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Season nine already, wow. Um, But before we dig into social media, a couple of Tom Petty notes... This past weekend was the annual Tom Petty weekend, uh, like the birthday weekend in Gainesville, Florida, and I immensely enjoyed seeing everyone's photos, videos, and stories that you all shared online. I just I couldn't afford to go this year, but I have it in my calendar for next year in black marker, so I'll definitely see you all there in 2024. Um, I'm thinking I might try to put together some sort of episode to recap the weekend, and if I can, grab some interviews and quotes with people who were there, you know, especially the performers. And, hey, you know what? I might have to get Paul Zolo. Jeff Slate and Jake Thistle back on a call to chat about how the weekend went for them. Uh, The other exciting news, for me at least, is that the new reissue of Mojo has shipped. So my red vinyl copy is winging its way across the continent to me as we speak. I also picked up a Gators Game Day tee from the store which arrived last week, and which I now have to lose enough weight to fit into. Um, Along with the reissue of Mojo shipping, the estate also released two previously unheard tracks from the Mojo sessions. And I'm starting to suspect that they just keep adding songs to my to-review list to test my stamina. They also released another track from the Wildflowers sessions. But the the two Mojo outtakes are a cover of Sonny Boy Williamson's Help Me and an original titled Mystery of Love, which definitely has that Mojo swing to it, along with Scott Thurston's Filthy Harmonica and a surf rock guitar lick from Mike Campbell. And the new Wildflowers era track is titled What's the Matter with Louise, which is a fun little, I think it's like a little 60s-style rock and roll song. Uh, It's another track that you can understand not making the final cut, but another track that's just so much fun to listen to and shows Tom that his relaxed, carefree best. And I'm starting to think there's more mojo coming, you know, folks. I think the focus on that album lately reminds me of sort of the build-up to Wildflowers and all the rest being released. And I've commented about this online before, but my main hope is that they have, um, you know, a mini or a full documentary coming along with a package of some of the extra tracks because we know that there was lots of video shot uh, during that recording session. So I'm hoping that that's what they're leading to. Um, in an interview released by Rolling Stone this past weekend, Tom remarked on the process for the recording process for Mojo, saying, We started to have such a good time recording that we finally had to just force ourselves to pull the plug on the thing because it could have just gone on and on and on. And I thought, I hate to stop, but we had so much material mounting up, it's coming easy, no struggle. And if I didn't have a tour coming up, I would probably just stay in the studio. I'm enjoying it that much. And this sounds to me like Tom saying that they left a fair bit on the cutting room floor. And obviously, as fans, we'd always love to hear those discarded takes or complete songs. So, there's my little prediction. I reckon in the next couple of months, we might find out that we're getting more Mojo. More more Joe, if you like. Okay, so over on Twitter and Facebook, or social media generally, I'd posted an an AI-generated image of Tom, as he may have looked at 73. And I chose to to try to have the AI rend him with a guitar, and that sort of studious look on his face when he was composing or, or playing sometimes, because... Tom was first and foremost a songwriter for me, and he's become my favourite songwriter of all time. I didn't think anyone would or could ever knock Lennon McCartney off that perch, and I'm not arguing that Tom was, you know, quote-unquote, the best songwriter, or better than those two at least, but he's definitely become my favourite during the course of this podcast. Okay, well that's enough waffle for now. Um, The last episode of last season covered a song that isn't universally loved in the Tom Petty catalogue. Today's episode, I'm pretty sure, is one of the most universally loved. It's the soaringly wonderful Learning to Fly. And if this is your first time listening to The Tom Petty Project, I don't play the song or clips from the song in the episode itself in order to avoid copyright issues or getting on the wrong side of the petty estate. If you want to give the song a listen before we dig into it, there's a link in the episode notes. (laughs) Learning to Fly will always hold a special place in my journey into Tom's music. It is, or certainly was for the longest time, my youngest daughter's favourite Heartbreaker song, and it's also the first cover that I heard Jake Thistle perform, which made me instantly want to find out more about this young kid who was inhabiting the very bones of this song that was at least twice as old as he was. We'll talk about this record in more general terms in the season wrap with John Paulson, but in his biography Petty, um, author Warren Zane's comments on the issues that Full Moon Fever and Into the Great Wide Open caused within the band, and especially with drummer Stan Lynch. He writes Though some viewed putting the Heartbreakers together with Jeff Lynn as a failed experiment, Into the Great Wide Open had songs that would appear and reappear on the Heartbreakers setlist. Learning to fly would always have a home in the live shows. And this statement is borne out when you look at the stats. The track is the 10th most performed song that Tom wrote, at least according to setlist.fm, and coming from the ninth album he wrote 15 years into his career, and some of the hits he wrote before and after. It's telling that this song was never far away from the top of the page when the Heartbreakers were putting together the set list for a tour. I think there are several reasons for that, but one of them is the sheer popularity of the song. In Conversations with Tom Petty, Tom tells author Paul Zolo that's been one of our most popular songs. We still get a lot of requests for that in movies, and people always want to hear it in the show. People embrace it. When Paul asks Tom to confirm that the origin of the song is him hearing a pilot say that learning to fly is easy, but coming down is the hard part, Tom replies, true. That was the inspiration and I took it from there. Jeff and I wrote that together. He also comments that it was written pretty quickly saying, I think we wrote it in an evening. It came quickly because I had written most of the words and I'd gotten a tune in my head. We sat down and spent a whole evening on it. But that's fairly quick if it comes in a day or two. Learning to Fly might be, could be one of the simplest or the simplest song Tom ever wrote. I and a lot of other people have commented on Tom's ability to do a heck of a lot with very little. He didn't often go for huge, complex arrangements or songs with lots of different sections and intricate chord progressions. He tended to focus mainly on melody and simplicity. You know, when we talk about a three-chord song or a four-chord song, what we generally mean is that overall there are only three or four main chords in the song. There may also be a few passing chords or one or two here and there to serve to move the bridge, you know, or to add an intro or an ending or some such. But this is truly and completely a four-chord song once we get into it, it's astonishing that this song never flags or gets boring, even though it is literally the same four chords, repeated in the same order, in the same rhythm for 4 minutes and 2 seconds. Which, by the way, makes it the second longest of the tracks on this album. Those four chords are also the most basic you'll find in rock and roll. Root, major 4th, major 5th, minor 6th. Um, in this case, they're arranged F, C, A minor G, so major fourth, root, minor sixth, major fifth, which again is so common and it's been used so many times. But it's a progression that's a perfect fit for any amateur piano player, because you don't have to play a single black note in that key. It's in C, obviously. Um, that makes me wonder if this one was actually written on piano. Um and Tom doesn't say and I wasn't able to dig out, you know, the origins or the the sort of the genesis of the song. But C isn't a key that most guitarists would write in. Um, But again, there's probably, it's the key ends up singing in, that would come into play too. And it's one of those songs that if you've played a full step up or down, it doesn't quite, it doesn't feel quite right. Some songs have to be in certain keys, and I think this might well be one of them. This one's a curiosity also in the Heartbreakers catalogue, because it's only the second time so far that Mike Campbell is credited with singing backing vocals. And wait for this week's Petty Trivia for more on that one. The song starts out with the the dense wall of guitar sound that we've come to expect from Jeff Lynne, and that was pretty much ever-present throughout the Full Moon Fever album. Three guitars again here, unless my ears deceive me to start. You get the acoustic guitar strumming the chord progression, then you have that beautiful, clean electric tone from Mike playing that gorgeous, simple lead guitar line. You then have that, it's like an arpeggio played with the same tone. Now, Mike could be playing that arpeggio and the lead line at the same time, but I'm not too sure he is. And especially if you listen to live versions, It's Mike playing that lead with his slide and Scott Thurston's playing those arpeggiated notes or that sort of backing uh, electric guitar. After four bars of that guitar intro, we get the drums cracking in with a three-note snare fill from Stan Lynch. And we have to talk about how much different that snare sounds to anything from the previous record Stan plays on. Um, I actually wouldn't be surprised if it's an acoustic snare with a sample laid over top of it. There is an Oberheim DMX drum machine on this track, um, so it's most likely augmenting that snare sound to give it that huge rattly tone. But the kick drum is definitely electronic. As right in the credits for this song, um, Stan is credited with, in quotes, drums without kick. The drum beat itself, like the rest of the song, doesn't move around too much other than the bridge when it takes the lead. We'll talk about that more later. It's a pretty metronomic backbeat with the hats on the quarter notes. I think there's also some percussion in there, and maybe that's some shakers. And again, it's been possibly augmented by the drum machine. I do like to wonder what Stan thought of playing half the drum part, though. We know that this album in particular was a real wedge issue for him in the band, and when you're being asked to play very unnaturally, you know, as not playing the kick would be, I think that could definitely be a sticking point for a musician like Stan Lynch. During this section, you also have another guitar part added. It sounds like a single palm muted note, or maybe the first and fifth note of each chord, and it's mixed really quite low, and it's played very percussively to match the rhythm of the bass guitar line, which again, is just sitting on the root notes. Again, quite interestingly, it's not Howie Epstein playing bass on this song. It's Jeff Lynne, And Yet again, I do wonder why that was and how it was received. Now, with this song and the way it was written, it could simply be that Tom and Jeff wrote the song quickly, laid down some foundation tracks, and found that they were good enough to use. So maybe that sort of that scratch bass line that Jeff Lynn played, they thought, well, we're not going to improve that. Let's just keep it. Howie does provide backing vocals on this one, though, and you know, played it quite a few times live throughout the following years. So we have Stan playing drums, but not the kick. Howie singing, but not playing bass. Mike Campbell providing backing vocals during the choruses. Any other curveballs? Oh yeah, Ben tension does not appear on this song at all. Now I do think that you can make a completely solid argument that there's no room for a piano or an organ part on this track as it's arranged here. But when it's played live, Benmont's piano additions are, as always, tasteful and complimentary. There's a fantastic version of the song from a performance at the Shoreline Amphitheatre in Mountain View, California in 1994, where Benmont plays just the most beautiful piano part for Tom to sing over in the most stripped-down version of this song that might be out there. Of course, in later years, this song was almost always played mainly acoustically without the big drums and the laid guitars, but that piano version is stunning in its impact, just because of how well Ben Mont plays it. No Ben on the album version, though, so we'll say no more about it for now. We get four more bars of intro, and then Tom's vocals come in. At this point, that trebly lead line that Mike is playing is dropped out so that Tom's voice can be the focal point for the song. After Tom sings All Alone... There's a beautiful big crash cymbal on the first beat of the next bar that repeats again through the rest of the song, but it shimmers through the guitar haze. It's this beautiful, big, um, and again, washed out in reverb. There's lots of reverb on that cymbal here, but it sounds really, really good. Uh, This verse is pretty straightforward, with just those rhythm and bass guitars keeping time and the drums providing the foundation. And here's the thing. Tom tells Paul Zolo in conversations with Tom Petty that he sang the tune in his head to Jeff Lynne, who responded, let's see what fits nicely underneath it. So, I think the simplicity of this song comes from Jeff recognizing that Tom had written a stunning lyric and not wanting to overcomplicate the arrangement and risk losing the impact of those words. Well, I started out down a dirty road, started out all alone. Another thing I go on and on about on this podcast is my admiration for how often Tom wrote a fantastic opening line, a lyric that quite often frames the entire rest of the song in one line or one idea. And this is another shining example of it. And to be super geeky here, I think the word well is incredibly important at the start of this song. You could easily just start this one out with, I started out. But the addition of, well, while I started out, gives it a sort of... It sounds like an old man recounting his early life to his grandkids, or someone speaking to another person at least, rather than a piece of poetry. It's conversational, and it really draws you in. It's very narrative. It's got a very narrative feel to it. Um, We then get another all-time fan favourite at the end of this verse. And the town lit up, the world got still. In the Rolling Stone interview I mentioned earlier, Tom agrees when the interviewer asks if this song is about resilience and not being beaten by, you know, trauma or tragedy. And, and Tom says, everybody has tragedy in their life. You can lay down and let the tragedy overwhelm you, or you can fly above it. Now, there's another way I think you can read this lyric too. If you think about that entire first verse, he could also be talking about creative growth and the creative life, about his journey to the top of the tree. He starts out down a dirty road, but then the town lights up and the world gets still. And to me, that's the most perfect metaphor for how an artist must feel every time they step out onto a big stage, before the lights go up and that first chord rings out, that brief second of shared anticipation between the artist and their audience just before the show begins, just before the magic happens. The song moves into the chorus without fanfare, just a triple shot on the snare to signal and move into this next section. We hear the lead guitar come back in, and we also get a percussive element added that I can't really describe. It's it's almost definitely a sample of some sort. And maybe it's a sample of a wood block that's been put through a ton of effects to make it sound almost nothing like that original instrument. You know, it's that cha 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 with that last shot being on the three and count in the bar. I'm going to talk about three and as a recap, um in case I haven't mentioned it before, what I'm talking about there is the half beat between the one, two, three, four. So as a drummer or any any musician, really, you count one and two and three and four and if you want to get more refined, it's 1e-anda, e 2e-anda, 3e-anda, e 4e-anda. So you've got these sort of points now that we can say, well, we come in on the 3-and. E, so having that percussion that starts on the 4 in one bar and ends on the 3-and in the next bar is a neat little device that throws a slight syncopation into what is otherwise a very straight 4-4 four, four backbeat. Again, the lyric in this chorus is so simple, yet so incredibly powerful. So much so that you almost can't believe that no one else has ever come up with the metaphor. I'm sure that those of you who are songwriters have had that awful feeling yourself where you write something and think, oh man, someone else must have written these words before. I better Google this quickly. Um, you know, sometimes that is the case, but it isn't here. I'm learning to fly, but I ain't got wings. Coming down is the hardest thing. So as I was suggesting earlier, there's a duality that you can read into these lyrics. Learning to fly without wings is a struggle or maybe a tragedy that must be overcome. And coming down is always hard, no matter the context. But again, I think it perfectly encapsulates that sense that performers have They've been out on the tightrope without a net during the performance. You know, I'm learning to fly, but I don't have wings. And then the elation and euphoria that can come with that, then the downer of the show being over, the lights going out and the joy of the crowd fading. This particular part of the trade, whether it be musicians, actors, or comedians, can often be a huge challenge to deal with. So there's layer upon layer in this incredibly simple analogy that Tom has lifted from a real-world practical situation. The next verse proceeds in the, pretty much the same fashion as the first, with the only real difference being that this is only eight bars instead of 16. Four lines instead of eight lines. Uh, we get another brilliantly evocative lyric, though, in Well, the good old days might not return. And there's that well again. And the rocks might melt, and the sea may burn. It's the idea that the worst could happen, but you have to find a way to transcend it. Again, in my alternate reality, fame or success or creative inspiration can be fleeting. Not many artists could go back to the well as fruitfully and as often as Tom did throughout his life. Many go back and find that the well is dry and the bucket is empty. We head into the next chorus, which again just repeats the first until the end, with the addition of those harmony vocals answering Tom's Learning to Fly, uh, where at the end we finally get a slight change. We get two more bars of that G major, the major fifth. And the Heartbreakers have used this little trick a lot in the past, and I always call it like a hang, but it was curiously absent on the last album. So. Maybe I'm overthinking this probably, but maybe this is a subtle little concession from Jeff Lynn to make sure that this feels like a heartbreakers record, not Full Moon Fever Part 2, even though it is kind of in a way. After this little two-bar hang, we get a sensational slide solo, um, excuse the alliteration there folks, from Mike Campbell. And I talked on the Running Down a Dream episode about iconic guitar solos, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, I think this is another one. It's not as frenetic or face-meltingly impressive in that way as Mike's epic closing jam to side one of Full Moon Fever but I defy you to find a solo that is better written. Every single note is perfectly placed. It's enough to be interesting, but not too much as to be flashy or overpowering within the song. And the tone. The tone is just completely gorgeous. It's the work of a musician at the absolute peak of his creative powers, and it's a peak that Mike sustained for an incredible period of time. And it's a slide solo, which Mike hasn't played a ton of to this point in the catalogue. You could play any number of styles of solo here, but I don't think you'd ever be able to top what Mike pulls off. You know, give this to Hendrix or Dwayne Allman or Van Zant or, or anyone. I don't think they're going to write a better part than this. In the Rolling Stone interview for Mojo that I referenced previously, Tom said of Mojo that, I really want to push Mike up to the front of the record because, I mean, I don't know if there's another guitar player any better than that. So that interview was 2010. In 1991, I don't think Tom had any different opinion of his friend and wingman. And hey, when you have someone that good, push him to the front of the record. It's a no-brainer. All right, folks, it's time for some... You know what it's time for? You know what it's time for? It's time for Petty Trivia. Uh, Your question from the Zombie Zoo episode last season was this. Which is the last song from Full Moon Fever that Tom played live as the main set closer at the Hollywood Bowl on September 25th, 2017? Was it A, Running Down a Dream? B, Free Falling? C, You're So Bad? Or D, I Won't Back Down? The answer is... A, Running Down a Dream. The band did play all four of those Full Moon Fever songs that night, but what better way to end the main set than to have Mike Campbell's solo blazing into an extended outro. And when you watch the footage from that night, Mike seems genuinely overcome by the end of the song. It's some rock and roll performance, folks. Now, I'll leave a link to that one in the episode notes because it's well worth checking out. I'm curious to learn whether they recorded much or any of the 40th anniversary tour and whether that will see the light of day at some point. I really, really hope so. Your question for this week is this. Learning to Fly, as I mentioned, is the second song in the Heartbreakers catalog to feature Mike Campbell on backing vocals, but what was the first? Was it A, Listen to Her Heart, B, Louisiana Rain, C, It Ain't Nothing to Me, or D, All Mixed Up? Okay, back to the song. We get another verse next, but in another switch, it's a 16-bar, eight-line verse instead of an eight-bar, four-line verse. So we get, obviously, first verse is 16, second verse is eight, last verse is 16. So it's like, again, just a little bit of variety within the structure of the song. Uh, In the first eight bars here, the drums are dropped out, but the percussion's left in, that cha-cha-cha-cha, cha, 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 that's left in. The lead guitar is also left in. so as we spoke lots on the last album, this is a masterclass in arranging. In a simple song with only four chords, you can still add movement and you you need to add movement by dropping parts in and out and layering things slightly differently in different parts of the song. And it works to great effect here to emphasize the lyrics. While some say life will beat you down, break your heart, steal your crown. Again, we're talking about tragedy, loss, you know, creative unfulfillment, fall from the limelight, the dissolution of a relationship. Whatever it is, you can insert yourself so easily and effortlessly into this lyric in so many contexts that it's no wonder that this song resonates so much. Tom tells Paul Zolo I've gotten a lot of different mail on it, different people that were inspired one way or another in life by that song. What an amazing talent to have to connect with people in that way. The second half of this verse throws back to the first and restates that I started from nowhere, I don't know what lies ahead, but I'll keep moving forward anyway. The readdition of the drums, the lead guitar, the percussion, and now some background ooze too, really make this last verse build to a positive feeling conclusion. After all this, I'm still here, I'm still moving forward, I still have something to say. The following chorus now changes things up a little by switching the lyrics slightly. Now we hear, I'm learning to fly around the clouds, but what goes up must come down. So there's a sort of acceptance of finality in this line. While we may be flying high now, at some point that will end. But it doesn't sound depressed or negative or scared of this. It's just sort of acceptance of that. And it's probably a healthy mentality to have really, isn't it? Coming out of this chorus, we have another two-bar hang on the G major when we head into what you have to call the bridge. You know, and a bridge or a middle eight in a song usually changes it in some, I won't say significant, but some more sort of significant way than this. So if you think about Baby We Ain't The First, I'm sure a lot of other lovers have been burned, in Refugee, that has that big major key change in the bridge and the chord progression is completely different before they go back into the main riff. Now, here we get a bridge that is defined essentially by an extended four-bar drum fill with a big tom and snare intro into it and Mike Campbell's fantastic slide note back out of it. But it's four bars, it's over really quickly, but I still think you're going to call that the bridge of this song. And We now head into the last minute of the song, and basically, really, the track's over at this point, right? Um, We're going to repeat the two different versions of the chorus with Mike throwing in some big dramatic slides that almost feel like they're meant to be a plane spiralling down toward the ground. Uh, There's one last little trick up this song sleeve, too, though, at the 3.52 mark, when we hear what is obviously meant to be a little bird chirping. So it's someone whistling, but it's, it's supposed to be a bird. So allusions here to flight that are sprinkled in toward the end. And I like that this detail is left until the very end. You've had the, you you get these, you know, with Mike, with those slides, you get this careering plane hurtling towards the earth, but then you get this beautiful little upbeat birdie trilling away. It emphasizes the contrast between up and down that this song is really about at its core. In the ABC News interview that Tom gives in 1991, he makes a crucial point. I don't say that I can fly. I'm learning, you know? And if you watch that interview, there's a really open, honest vulnerability when Tom says this. He's not just giving the interviewer a soundbite, he's speaking on the fly and off the cuff. And I think a little insecurity just pokes its head above the parapet there and gives you that glimpse into the heart of a rock star who wasn't all brash arrogance and no substance. Quite the reverse. He's still learning. He's not there yet. It's such an important word and such an important idea. The video for this ones it's almost like a short coming-of-age movie, with shots of the band interspersed with a loose narrative of a young boy adolescent young man who goes through a series of sexual awakenings before finding what we're going to presume is true love at the end of the story. The band shots are all framed around an aircraft or an aircraft yard with the band playing on the wing of a plane and sort of around it. And it's all quite nicely posed and balanced against that mini story that's going on in the background. It's all shot in black and white. It's very tasteful. It's kind of a cool video. The single uh, was released on June 17th, 1991, two weeks before the album and reached number 28 on the Billboard chart. It also peaked at number one on the US rock chart one of 10 Tom Petty songs to do so, and one of two from this album to reach that position. The Heartbreakers played the song 492 times overall. Like I said, this is 10th in the list of uh, live songs, including on September 25th, 2017 in that last show, when it was the first song after the Wildflowers 3-pack in the middle of the main set. But I still think that Gainesville performance is again my favourite version of this song, and the bit I of most is when he smiles warmly after singing Coming Down Is The Hardest Thing and says to the crowd, Every time... It's that little bit of performative flair that makes a show unique. And there's a sincerity in it that you can't fake. <laughs> Okay, Pettyheads, that's it for this week. It's been a longer episode today, I think. um, So I hope I haven't bored you to tears with my ramblings. But, you know, I I think it needed to be longer because this is such a great song. I think that if someone says to you, hey, I don't know any Tom Petty music, can you give me 10 songs to listen to? This just has to be in the list. And I know that top 10s are too hard and we all have favorites and there's so many songs in the catalog that you could make the same argument for. But to me, this is just such an example of his ability to be so powerful, yet so economical. It has a fantastic solo from Mike and while it doesn't feature Benmont on keys, Howie on bass, or Stan on the kick drum, maybe you, could throw some, you know, maybe you could throw a live version on there. But I think it's a great representation of Tom Petty as a songwriter. It's a perfect pop song, and there's no way I could even remotely consider giving this less than the gold medal 10 out of 10. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network, so go check us out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. I'm sure you'll find something, that el- something else there that you like. I always say something there, but something else there that you like. Um, You can also check out my other podcast, Seaside Pod Review, a Queen podcast that I do with my best friend, Randy Woods, who performs all the music you hear in this podcast, including the theme um, and the Ultimate Catalogue Clash, which I co-host with the hardest working man in podcasting, Corey Morissette. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads and YouTube at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Go follow, like, subscribe as applicable and again, please leave a review or a rating if you haven't done that already, uh, including on Spotify, which now allows ratings. Keep talking to me on social media and I'll... Try to read out as many of your comments as I can on a a weekly basis. Um, And as a reminder, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. When you're looking for Tom's music, please visit official streaming platforms, or even, you know what, I keep telling you this now, go to your local independent record seller. Grab some actual physical media and something to play it in and support local businesses. Seriously, folks, Jeff Bezos does not need any more of your money. Um, if you're looking for official merchandise, please go to tompetty.com. And if you're looking for merchandise for this show, please go to tompeddyproject.com. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever Groups on Facebook if you're not already a member. They're fantastic fan communities and there's a lot of cool people who hang out in there. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week with the second track from Into the Great Wide Open, the Uptempo. King's Highway. Bye-bye.